0: Good morning, Uh, I was talking to Evan before the service and I I find myself getting emotional during the music and it creates quite a bit of a situation with my mask. (laughs) Um, I'm happy to be here this morning, Uh, the last time I preached was in the summer when we were fully online and I must say it was odd speaking primarily to a video camera. So I've had to reassess my dreams of becoming a YouTube sensation. Uh, I think I'm going to have to leave that to you, Renus. And I have some ideas of what you might call your channel. I was thinking the sinister minister uh, could be a good one, pastor of disaster. I have different thoughts, but we'll talk. Anyways, um, yeah, welcome everyone and hello to everyone online as well. Um, It's good to be here today. And I have the somewhat unique task of linking together uh, a few different themes that have converged at this point in our sermon series. So, we're moving through our year of biblical literacy, and we are going into our section that will cover the prophets. And we're also going to take a bit of a closer look at the prophet Hosea in particular this morning. Of course, this Sunday also marks the beginning of Advent, and the first theme of Advent, uh, which we also want to consider this morning, is hope. So there's no shortage of ground for us to cover this morning, so strap in. I'm going to try and do this all in 20 minutes, so we'll see how it goes. Um, I want to start by recommending to you a book which has proven to be very helpful for me this year and also has contributed to many of the thoughts that I want to consider today, and the book is Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. I imagine that the title alone is resonating with some of you, Um, and that's what happened for me, and so if it does, I encourage you to pick up a copy and give it a read, it's it's been very helpful. And um, now some of you may be thinking, Disappointment with God, that doesn't sound very hopeful. I'm looking at you, Susan. Uh, And on the surface, I think that may be correct, but I think if we define our terms a little bit more, the relationship between hope and disappointment can become more clear. In fact, I think the simplest way we can define disappointment is the way the disciples on the Emmaus Road defined it. We had hoped. What does disappointment really mean other than this? If we are disappointed, it means that we, our hopes have been dashed. We had hoped in something. It could have been anything, but it didn't come true. Or that at the very least, it didn't happen in the way we expected. And where does that leave us? In a state of disappointment, loss, and grief. I'm sure this is where some of us find ourselves this very morning. And if we are not there now, It's very likely we have visited there very recently, perhaps numerous times in this past year. If you do find yourself in a state of disappointment this morning, know that you are in good company among the prophets of Israel. This year I decided I wanted to read through the prophets and that's part of why I'm standing up here this morning. I made the mistake of telling Renus that I was doing that and so I was asked to speak. We have discussed prophetic literature before, and if you will recall our series on Amos last year, just to refresh, we need to remember that the goal of prophetic literature is not primarily fortune or future telling. Prophetic literature in the Bible is always concerned with reality as it is at present, first and foremost. The prophet's message is one for his time in particular. He is calling out the actions of a specific time, place, and people group. But his message also extends beyond time, place, and people due to the nature of the things that he is concerned with. Hear these words from Abraham Heschel in his book The Prophets. The things that horrified the prophets are even now daily occurrences all over the world. There is no society to which Amos' words would not apply. Although the message of the prophet is for a specific time, place, and people, the truth of the words extend very far beyond this, all the way to the year 2020 and all the way to the place Calgary, Alberta. I want to introduce to you a tool which has been very helpful for me in my own understanding of the prophet's. Oh, I'm getting a cue to move over. So this tool here to my left is uh, called the grieving wheel. It's a tool for understanding the various phases that we move through when we experience disappointment and loss in our lives. It's fairly self-explanatory, but I will give you a, a quick rundown of how it works. So we have four sort of segments here. Um, at the top, we have life as usual. To the to the right, we have shock. Underneath the bottom, we have chaos. And then to the left, we have new beginnings. And so, as you can see with the wheel there, are it's broken into these different sections. And there is a transition point in the middle of each of the sections. So each transition point is, the first one is loss. <clears throat> and that's what transitions us from life as usual, the usual ups and downs, the familiar, into this place of shock. And in shock, we experience resistance, disbelief, numbness, disorientation, confusion. And then we have, to move from shock into chaos, we have what is called acknowledgement. So this is when we acknowledge the loss, we acknowledge what's happened. And that actually plunges us down into this place of chaos. And when we're in chaos, we experience fear, anger, guilt, sadness, and a search for meaning. Why is this happening? Why did this loss occur? And then that search for meaning is what takes us to new understanding, and new understanding moves us into new beginnings. In this section, we have more energy, we're looking ahead, we have a renewed hope, we readjust. And then, integration. This is when we integrate these experiences that we've had into our normal framework for life, and we move back to life as usual. And sometimes we're going round and round and round. Um, but this tool is helpful because many of the prophetic books begin in the lost section of this wheel, and they move through exactly, they move through exactly this cycle. So as we move forward, we're gonna use this tool as an anchor point. So I want you to just keep it in the back of your mind and we'll refer to it again later. We've been going through Israel's history. So we already have a sense of what's going on with the people God has chosen. Remember that Israel was called to be different, to be set apart by God, to be a blessing. But they rejected that calling and they rejected God in the process. This is a huge loss, and the prophet is uniquely sensitive to it. In fact, he often seems to be the only person who actually cares. The prophet's sensitivity and lament over the state of the world is what leads him to God. Let me read a quote from Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God. More passionately than anyone in history, The prophets of Israel give voice to the feeling of disappointment with God. Why do godless nations flourish, they asked? Why is there such poverty and depravity in the world? Why so few miracles? Where are you, God? Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Show yourself. Break your silence. For God's sake, literally, act. The pain over the state of affairs in Israel is overwhelming for the prophet and he is begging God to intervene. He is face to face with what philosophers call the problem of evil. If God is good and he cares about us and he's also all powerful, why does it appear that he isn't intervening? I want to use another idea to illustrate further what I believe we see playing out in the Prophets. Here we have a picture of a cute little baby. As many of you know, Nalanda and I are expecting our first here quite soon. January 6th is our due date. So naturally, this has been on my mind. Um, We've had many conversations about what it will be like to become parents. And something that we were discussing the other day was about how initially The baby does not really have a concept of you as a person. You respond to their cries, you care for them, and you meet their needs, but that's all you really are for at least a time. But at some point, and now some of the parents of teenagers here may disagree with me on this, but at some point your child develops a sense of you as a parent, as your own person. You have your own personhood, You have longings, desires, emotions. You are complex and much, much more than just someone who meets needs. Isn't this similar to what happens in how we relate to God? Are there times that perhaps we are guilty of forgetting God's heart? Until we are reminded, aren't we liable to forget that God has told us that he is a person with emotions, longings, and even vulnerabilities? This realization, I think, is what the prophet encounters in God's response to his cry of desolation. What is God's response to the way his children have time and time again shunned and rejected him? What we discover is surprising. God seems to be equally grieved about the loss that is occurring with his people. We have just asked with the prophet, does God care? The answer is that God cares more than we can even imagine. In fact, returning again to our grieving wheel, it appears that God is stuck in this wheel of grief, just the same as you or I or any of the prophets might have been. As I've been reading the prophets this year, I can tell you that God spins around the grieving wheel so many times in a single book It can be overwhelming just reading it. The prophetic books help us begin to realize and believe that God is caught up in this cycle of grief and loss with humanity. He has made himself vulnerable, and his heart breaks for his people. Reading the prophets leaves us with very little doubt about this truth. Now, there's a question that should begin to emerge from these realizations And this is the primary question which I think the prophetic books force us to consider. And this is also a primary question in Philip Yancey's book. And that's the question of what is it like to be God? Is this something that we've spent a lot of time reflecting on or, or thinking about? I think often we prefer to tell God what it's like to be us. And that's a good thing. We should continue to do that. But if we're maturing as Christians, this is a question must continue to ask ourselves and for the answer to this question today we're going to turn to Hosea 1 to 3 now I won't have time this morning to read through these three chapters uh, but I encourage you to do so uh, this week and so the answer that we find in Hosea to our question is quite graphic in the first chapter the prophet Hosea is instructed to take for himself a promiscuous wife, in order to represent God's own personal experience with Israel. What is it like to be God? It's like being married to a prostitute, to a person who is chronically unfaithful to you, who promises to be there, who says that they love you, but their actions continually prove otherwise. If there was any doubt left in our mind of God's intimate connection to the human story, it has been eliminated with this image. The prophets, Hosea in particular, provide us with a very different image of God's character. God's ability to see the big picture, his omniscience, if you will, doesn't impact the depth of his emotional responses to the events of human history, and even the events of our individual lives. God is very attached to us. And what we do and what we do not do affects him in astonishing ways. In Hosea 1-3, to we move through a full cycle of the grieving wheel with God. I'm gonna to try to explain this a little bit. So in, H- in Hosea 1, we start in the loss section. And loss has occurred in the usual fashion. Rather than just explaining what Israel has done, we're given an image directly through Hosea's marriage with Gomer. This is a powerful image, and it's meant to convey the gravity of the situation in Israel. The people have continually forgotten God, and he is deeply wounded by this, the same way that you or I might be in an unfaithful marriage. What happens due to the people's forgetfulness is violence and oppression, the poor are forgotten and trampled on, and all of these things are related to Israel's pursuit of these other gods. In Hosea 2, we descend into chaos. Israel is handed over to the things they are pursuing instead of God and his way. These passages of scripture are difficult to read. Hosea 2 is, is very descriptive in nature, um, it uses intense language, and, and God seems very angry, and he seems very sad. And as modern people, we're uncomfortable with this. These are intense displays of emotion. Um, the philosopher Charles Taylor says that we, as a society, value rational detachment, and we consider outbursts of emotion to be shameful. But the God of Israel doesn't seem to share our sensibilities around this. The handing over that we witness in Hosea 2 is understood by scholars as the manifestation of God's wrath. The removal of God's presence and blessing has dire consequences, but these consequences are also the natural result of the things that Israel is pursuing So then in Hosea 3, we move into the New Beginnings section of our wheel. There is renewed hope. There is looking ahead to a future day. The name Hosea actually means salvation. This should signal to us that God's salvation plan is always plan A, never plan B. God's handing over of the people to their sin always has the intention and hope that they will return to him. His handing over is never indifferent. It's emotionally attached and invested in the outcome of repentance. Let me read Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So here we see that there will be exile, but there will also be returning and rest. So we've established that God cares a great deal about what is happening in his world. But we are still faced with the question of his perceived inaction. God isn't silent, we've heard his laments, we've considered what it is like to be him. God is clearly in agony over the human predicament, yet he still appears to refuse to take direct control of the situation. Doesn't this also feel true for us now, some way in 2020? This is where we live, even after Jesus. Humanity continues to go astray, And forget God and we see the consequences of that around us in our world. But our mistake is in thinking that that's the whole story. So the words of the prophet Zechariah give us insight into this. It says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God will not use human power and might to overthrow people and force his will upon them. Again and again, through the biblical story, God refuses to become a tyrant. In the Gospels, we see Jesus being saddled with these same expectations. The people are waiting for a mighty and powerful Messiah. We know that Jesus is mighty and powerful, but these qualities don't appear in the way that we expect them to. God seems to have an entirely different vision for redeeming humanity and it will all be accomplished by the work of his Holy Spirit. Jesus has come to begin a new creation among humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit. The story culminates when Jesus takes God's wrath upon himself. What does this mean? It means that he was handed over so that we don't have to be. The Holy Spirit's primary role then is to make it clear to us that our own way leads to death. The Christian is someone who has come to God and said, please, don't let me have it my way. Change my heart, God. I see that my way leads to death. Help me live your way. Do you see how this work of the Holy Spirit is accomplishing God's exact original intention? Remember that God wanted a people who would be set apart, a people who would live his way and therefore bless the nations. God's Spirit works within us and with us to make us into these people, people who are called to be different and to bless our world. We are led by the Holy Spirit to begin to orient our lives around loving God and loving others. Jesus is the firstborn among us. He fulfilled the human end of the covenant and we are led by his spirit to do the very same thing, to become again people of the covenant who are called to be set apart and to be different. We're called back to the covenant, back to God's original intention for human flourishing. I want to close by breaking this down into three things that I think the prophets encourage us to do when we are wrestling with disappointment. The first is to wrestle with disappointment. That might seem obvious, but this is very easy to avoid actually doing. We don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to have these dark feelings, and so it's easy to avoid them, and we, are, we live in a society of distraction. We distract ourselves to no end, So the first move that the prophets encourage is actually wrestle with this, actually be discouraged. We should be upset. We should be distraught about the state of affairs in our world over the brokenness that happens in our own city. I'll just give you a quick personal example. For the last three years, I've been working um, front lines with at-risk youth here in Calgary, and so up until this summer when I, I, my whole team, we were all let go. That's another story of disappointment I don't have to share here. But um, in these three years, uh, before I started my work, I received from God the verse Lamentations 2.11, and it says, "'My eyes fail from weeping. "'I'm in torment within, because my people are destroyed children and infants faint in the streets of the city." I didn't know quite the meaning of this until I got into my work. I knew it was going to be important. Um, and this year, and, and throughout, there's many ways, many stories I could share about the significance of that verse for me in my life. Um, but this year, it all came to a head when we lost two young people, uh, aged 21 and 23 and their lives were filled with injustice. They never had a chance. And I, I was in despair. I was in despair over this, and I should be. We should be in despair about this. It's happening in our city. And, but these things have to drive us to God, and that is the next step. And these things lead us to God. And I went to God, and what I discovered is that he was more grieved than I was. I realized that Lamentations 2.11 was actually his experience, not mine. It became mine as well, but it was his. He was in torment within because of what's happening in our world. God is not unmoved by these things. So the second step is to let God speak to us, and we've practiced this a little bit today. We need to hear God's lament in the prophets, to hear his longings and his frustrations, To consider what it's like to be him, to dwell and reflect on his perspective, and we will quickly realize that he is more upset and grieved than we are, and then we can let his compassion wash over us. Now the third is to look for the ways that God is working by his Holy Spirit. God might not be working in the ways that we would like to see. Perhaps we, like the prophets, we want to see power. We want to see might. We want to see him come, fix it all in one go. But God is determined to work differently. And this primarily happens right here in our hearts. Because what is the root of the injustice and the things that we see in the world? Jesus showed us its selfishness, its pride, its greed, its lust, It's all of these things that are within us as well. And God wants to change our hearts. And God will often change us through our circumstances rather than changing our circumstances themselves. Do I have any DIY people in the house? Any do-it-yourselfers? DIY is great, but maybe not when we apply it to our spiritual life. That's why Zachariah says, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit. To understand with this as well, that the pressure is off on some of these things. These words of Zechariah were in regards to rebuilding the temple. And that was the, the process that they were in the midst of. And God said, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit. Jesus said, fear not, little flock, it's my father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the kingdom is something that we receive. It's not something that we build. So God initiates and we respond. Remember that the God who turned the death of his son into the gospel will one day redeem all the things that you are facing in life. This is his promise to us. And this is where we find renewed hope. This is how we move into the new beginnings. But we don't get there if, if we go back to our wheel. We don't go from loss in, right into new beginnings, right? We gotta go through this process. That's why I say we can't avoid wrestling with these things. So I wanna close, uh, we're gonna listen to a song, and this is a song about being different, about being set apart. It's called Different. And I want to invite you to reflect on the covenant as you listen to this song. And we've talked a lot about God's heart and we've talked particularly about the pain in God's heart. But I want, to think, I want you to think about the joy that God's heart has when he hears his children singing a song like this. When we finally stop saying, God, change this, change that. And we start saying, God, change me. I want to be changed, and so I I hope you're encouraged by this song.